Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you were aware of that. Hey, it's a great day to be alive. Hope you're having a wonderful one. Hope that macro global pandemics aren't getting you down. I hope that micro local stresses of life, whatever they are, are not either. It's a good day. Make it a good day. Today, I've got a very interesting guest named Devin Singh. He is a, an associate professor of religion at Dartmouth College, where I didn't go there. I went to talk to the school that's associated with it for my MBA. Anyway, Devin's a very interesting guy, and we're going to talk about God and money, money and God, silver and gold. Hey, but before we do that, I want to tell you about a few comedy dates that I have coming up. On March 18th, I will be at The Stand in New York City on the 8 p.m. show with some outstanding comedians. You should check that out. On March 21st, I'll be on the Best of Atlanta at Laughing Skull Lounge in Atlanta, Georgia. March 27th through 29th, I'll be at the Syracuse Funny Bone with Grant Lyons, who is a very smart, very funny person. April 8th, I will be headlining a show at the D.C. Comedy Festival in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Taxation without representation as a municipality. Anyway, come on out. We'd love to see you there. So let me ask you a question, folks. Has your religion or relationship with God affected the way you think about money? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to guess whether you know it or not it has. For example, I know that mine, I know that growing up Catholic, I don't believe I deserve to be good at golf. I'm not sure how that relates. Well, it kind of relates to the country club lifestyle. I don't deserve it. And that's a Catholic hangup. It's a pathology. Anyway, more to the point, has your relationship with money affected the way you either relate with religion and or the language that you use about religion, the language you use to discuss eternity, the almighty? I bet it has. And there's a reason it has. It's because the language that the early church theologians used to describe God, to describe Jesus, and to describe the value of their religion were often economic in nature. And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk with Devin Singh, who's an associate professor of religion at Dartmouth College, as I mentioned, and his first book, Divine Currency, The Theological Power of Money in the West, which examines the ways early Christian thinkers made use of monetary and economic concepts as they created Christian doctrine. Christian doctrine. Did I say that right? I did, I think. We talk about how financial language and metaphor of the early church affects how we talk about money and God, yet today, some 2,000 years later. Devin's a very interesting guy, very smooth cat. Prior to joining the faculty at Dartmouth, Devin was a Mellon postdoctoral fellow at Yale University and served more recently at Harvard Divinity Schools, Hava Divinity Schools Center for the Study of World Religions. For the 2019-2020 academic year, he will be visiting scholar, a visiting scholar at Princeton University's Center for the Study of Religion. Man, this guy gets all around that there Ivy League because he's a smart cat, as you'll soon find out. I'm very interested in this topic. I'm very interested in philosophy and money, religion and money. So I'd love to hear your feedback on this conversation today. Hit me up at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Make sure you include that podcast in the email address, paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. We'd love to talk to other scholars of the religious and philosophical world about money. And here is one right now. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Devin Singh. I think money stands out because it continues to be very central, very influential for us. And so there's a question about why that's the case. Also, because of this contradiction or this paradox that I mentioned, where there is so much vociferous kind of denunciation and rejection of the love of money and wealth, and yet 
Christian societies and many Christian traditions <laughs> do continue to, to idolize money. And so there's, there needs to be a question about why that's the case. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Devin Singh, welcome to Crazy Money. Paul, it's great to be here. You wrote a book called Divine Currency, which sounds like the sequel to The Da Vinci Code. So two questions. <laughs> number one, have you sold the movie rights? And number two, how much gold is buried under the Vatican? I'm still waiting on uh, being approached by Hollywood. And for anyone who's listening, I'm ready and willing to make that film. And you're right. It's funny when these topics about religion and money and Christianity and money in particular come up, there are a lot of great conspiracy theories that people like to float, particularly things like what we just mentioned in terms of money being in the Vatican and the sort of riches of the church and whatnot. My assumption was that this was an analysis of the use of money in the Bible, but it's not. You're really talking about the intersection of God and greed. Tell me more about that. I work in this field of religion, theology, religious studies. So I've you know, read a good amount of books on this topic of religion and economics and religion and money. There are a ton of books that talk about what the Bible says or supposedly says about money. And I didn't necessarily want to just add to that. Of course, everybody's looking for a, a nice field guide and clear manual to, you know, kind of clear, cl clear cut directions in terms of what it means to live according to the Bible and money. And I wanted to actually look at different issues in particular, the legacy of these ideas of money in the Bible and how they've actually shaped culture in Western societies. So it's a bit of a historical work and a bit of a theoretical work to understand what are some of the ideas that come from this interaction between God, money, and concerns about greed, and how has that shaped societies in the West as a result of that. How does one become interested in this topic? How do you stumble upon an expertise in the intersection of God and money? Part of it is, you know, sort of the weird serendipitous journeys that, you know, we all take in terms of our careers. For me, you know, a combination of it was uh, being raised in an international development setting. My mom was a foreign service officer doing international development work overseas. And so I was exposed at an early age to questions about poverty and development. And Where did y'all live? When I was three, we moved to Cameroon in West Africa, and then we moved to Morocco. Wow. and lived there for three years. So a big chunk, about seven years of my uh, childhood were spent in Africa. And so that was definitely formative for me. So obviously that brought up questions of religion as well, culture, all these kind of ideas were in the mix. And then I, through my own kind of background and family background, my dad is from India and comes from a Sikh background. My mother is Anglo-American, Episcopalian. So there's religion, interreligious sort of stuff in the mix as well. I've also kind of been one of those weirdos that was always interested in these kind of big questions of meaning and life. And so, and so when <laughs> I was- Weirdos, come on. I mean, you know, I could have been much more practical in college and chosen a much more, you know, a, a degree that might lead more clearly toward a, a lucrative career. There's an MBA waiting for you on the other side of Dartmouth's <laughs> campus, Devin. Yeah, I'm waiting for that. So that, those are a few factors, kind of background, upbringing, you know, I started studying religion because I was interested in these big ideas, but then I really gravitated toward these questions of religion and social and economic justice, religion and revolutionary movements around the world, questions about Jesus and authority. All these things were super fascinating to me. And again, kind of looking back, I think it's because of, you know, part of the things that I mentioned of my upbringing. But I sort of wandered through graduate study, through undergraduate and graduate study around these questions of this fascinating connection between 
religion and money. And it's something that, of course, is, you know, I think it interests a lot of people, right? I mean, you know, when I bring up these topics, people usually have an opinion about this issue. So it's something that I think many of us are very interested in. And so in, in some ways, I just wanted to kind of dig deeper and find some some greater clarity around those issues. So let's talk about the deep digging that you did in Divine Currency. Your website describes Divine Currency thusly. This book shows how early economic ideas structured Christian thought in society, giving crucial insight into why money holds such power in the West. What does that mean and why is it important? Most people, when they think about Christianity and money, think about Christianity's ethical teachings against money, or at least against extreme wealth. There are people will, will say, oh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll quote the Bible or misquote the Bible about things like <laughs> the, the, lo- the love of money being the root of all evil, or, you know, the need to give to the poor. So people are well acquainted with the idea that Christianity has a lot of warnings about money. What people are less acquainted with, and what I wanted to show is that Christianity has also, maybe counterintuitively or paradoxically, made a lot of use of money and economic ideas to present its own claims about what you should value and how you should prioritize things. What I mean by that is it borrows language and logic and concepts from economics and from the economy in its time in terms of the Roman economy to then say, God is sort of of higher value. God is of greatest worth. And therefore, these are the reasons why you should pursue God first. God is also described in terms of an economic or a money manager, managing the resources of the cosmos, managing the world the way that a good steward or a good economist would allocate resources well. And a variety of other metaphors that we can get into and talk about and other kinds of narratives that infuse and inject money and inject language and ideas of economics into Christianity itself, into its so-called core doctrine, these kind of founding ideas. And then I wanted to, to make the case that this may be part of the reason why we continue to be obsessed with money and continue to struggle with this question of do we worship money or not? Because we've been shaped, we meaning those of us in the West, Europe and the US, and societies affected by quote unquote Western culture have been shaped by Christian ideas as well. And so it's kind of percolating in the water, giving us these weird subterranean links between religion and money that still shape us and affect us in various ways. And so I wanted to shed light on that. So do you believe that injecting the church's language with financial overtones was purposely meant to imbue the church's teaching with more legitimacy? In a sense, so I would say yes and no. That's a great question and a fascinating question. It was in the sense that, you know, borrowing metaphors that people can understand And metaphors and ideas that people care a lot about, in this case, money and gaining wealth, and then using those and transferring those to say, well, let's talk not about money, but about God as the highest wealth, as the greatest treasure, etc. It gives it a certain legitimacy or a certain purchase, a certain uh, appeal, because, you know, you can understand that you can kind of get on board with that. The way that I used to love and obsess about money, now I can transfer that that whole structure and idea toward loving and obsessing about God, right? So I think initially there was that. Now we can think about the ways that later as the church became more wealthy and became a church of the empire and power, the ways that it then actually used things like gold and coinage and literal material money to present itself as legitimate. That's another level that I think is also there that we need to think about as well. But I, but I also am interested in the unintended consequences that it, certainly the church was not trying to, this is kind of shooting itself in the foot you know, by using monetary metaphors to talk about why we should love God and somehow those metaphors then still keeping us fixated on money. Obviously that's, that's not what the church would have wanted. So 
there are some unintentional outcomes here that I'm also interested in that they may not have seen or, or these unforeseen consequences of continuing to talk in monetary terms, even when you're trying to speak about something else. But money isn't, I mean, there's tons of metaphors in the New Testament, right? There's builder, farmer, kings, shepherd, lamb, soldier, et cetera. Why is money different? It's not necessarily different. I mean, I, I think one could perhaps tell interesting tales about the effects of using other metaphors uh, to talk about God and salvation. I think money stands out because it continues to be very central, very influential for us. And so there's a question about why that's the case. Also, because of this contradiction or this paradox that I mentioned, where there is so much vociferous kind of denunciation and rejection of the love of money and wealth, and yet Christian societies and many Christian traditions <laughs> do continue to, to idolize money. And so there's, there needs to be a question about why that's the case. Yes, we can talk about the ways that certain Christian traditions have idealized things like farming. There are agricultural metaphors that we find that certain communities today are frozen in time because of perhaps because of that association with certain kinds of I think there even is a study about why, you know, speaking about Jesus as a lamb versus, you know, slaughtered as a lamb leads to certain kinds of ideas about, you know, eating fish on Friday versus not. There actually are people that have studied these kinds of things as well. The but, mint jelly industry is highly <laughs> dependent upon the lamb metaphor. There's some branding there to be done. I can see, I can see the jar right now, kind of with a cross. and The and, sacrificial uh, jelly. All yes. right, so let's talk specifically about some of the metaphors that the early church embraced, and then we'll dive into sort of what the long-term effects those are. You mentioned earlier about the divine economist. Tell me what that's all about. So as theologians, uh, we're trying to describe how God relates to the world. What does it mean that God is Lord of this world and it's somehow in control of, of us, of history, of destiny? One of the models they drew on, there are two major ones. One is God as a king, and the political aspect of this is, is huge as well, and we can talk about that. But also God as, you know, what's variously translated as a steward, as an economist, as an administrator, uh, sometimes governor as well. But there is an economic dimension to it that's important. And so they were using these metaphors to help early Christians understand what it means that God is in control of things. And so not just giving orders and commands the way a king does, but ensuring that what God attempts to do in the world is accomplished the way that somebody who's really keeping track of how their resources are used and what the profits and what the returns are of those resources. So basically to use uh, modern parlance, God was concerned about ROI in a certain sense, according to, to some of these theologians. So God is both CEO and comptroller in this metaphor. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of language of the pastor as well, the bishop, the early overseers of the church, as being good shepherds of their people, shepherds being those who watch over the souls, but also steward the resources of the church. This is huge for early Christian communities that bishops and pastors needed to be obviously responsible and ethical, you know, not embezzling funds. That was an issue from the beginning as well, but not just that but using your money well so that there's a good return on it. And the ultimate return, of course, is greater conversion, greater belief, but it's also about not being wasteful, being parsimonious, being economic in the sense of efficient in your use of resources. So it, it kind of hangs at this cosmic level with God. It applies to the Christian emperor at another level, and then it trickles down to ideas of leaders of churches and communities as well. You talk about Christ as God's coin. What did coins look like in the time of Jesus? Coins, in many ways, looked quite similar to coins that we are familiar with. Coinage emerged in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey, but very quickly 
uh, permeated ancient Greece in the 600s to the 500s, roughly, but very quickly spread around the Mediterranean and into other parts of the empire under Alexander the Great and then also in the, in the Roman world. Coins were usually round discs that were blank pieces of metal that were then hammered with insignia, with symbols, and perhaps with some words as well. And so coins were used to signify under whose authority you were buying and selling, and they kind of indicated whose territory you were in, which is a major role that money continues to play today. We kind of forget about the politics of money, but it's huge in terms of currency and, and how that works. So coins communicate messages, coins convey ideas, coins try to shape beliefs as well about what it means to use them and, and who you are by the fact that you're using them. And so then I talk about how these theologians were then using this metaphor and this idea of the coin to talk about how Christ as the incarnation of God was this message, was this communication from God to the world, but one that also then accomplished these things that we've been talking about kind of economically in an economic sense. What does the significance of Jesus as a coin mean? One of the major theories in the early church in terms of what it meant to be saved, because people have had these debates then, they continue to have these, have these today. You know, how do we describe salvation? What does it actually mean? Why did this person show up and die on a cross? One of the major metaphors is called the ransom theory of atonement. This is a common sort of conversation that was happening in the first few hundred years of the church. Basically, the idea that somehow humans were in some kind of debt slavery. To so whom? There were debates about this. Usually it's the devil. Sometimes it's just the death in general um, that, we're, that we're somehow in some kind of negative situation that we're entrapped in some way. And the entrapment was somehow economic, that we sold our rights, sold ourselves in some way to Satan. And the devil had a kind of ownership of us as debt slaves. And so Christ as the coin is that redemption, that redemptive payment that buys humanity back. And this language of redemption is still with us today. And we forget that it's economic fundamentally. And Christians today might wonder and ask, you know, well, if we're using this language of redemption and saying that we've been redeemed by Christ or redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, what, you know, redemption is to be bought back. And what is that about? So it's there from the beginning. And so Christ as the coin is this currency that pays for humanity's debt and enables humanity to become free. And now to then serve God. And what I end up saying is that God, humans actually then become slaves to God. So that's, that's another um, kind of layer of this, but in some sense they're freed from debt slavery to the devil because of the coin of Christ. There was a point in my life where I was a debt slave to capital one and it felt very much diabolical for quite some time. Yes. Yeah. That language has stayed with us. I mean, we, we definitely demonize and perhaps rightly so predatory lending Yes. and enslaving kinds of debt. And that's that, that continues to be a problem today. And that's actually what my next book is about, is looking more in depth at debt itself, as opposed mm -hmm. to money and currency. There's the passage in the gospel where Jesus is challenged with, somebody shows him a coin and basically says, who do I owe this to? And he says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, render unto God that which is God. I always interpret that to mean, you owe your taxes to Caesar, but your ass belongs to God. Is that how it was interpreted in the early church? That's one of the ways it was interpreted, and I think that's, in, in many ways, a pretty decent interpretation. There's been a lot of debate about this passage. It's perplexed interpreters for as long as it's been around. But one of the ways was this question of priorities, that perhaps at a basic level, yeah, give these taxes to the governing authority, but ultimately your ultimate authority and your soul and your life and your worship should be directed to God. Um, there are other ways that this can be interpreted where really this is a backhanded rejection and condemnation of Caesar and, his, and Caesar's claim to own anything from us. And so some people have interpreted this as a, as a 
just a rejection of, of Caesar completely. But it does seem to establish this, this almost too neat sort of secular, sacred division where money and taxes belong to the government and everything else belongs to God. But again, it's, it's a confusing passage. Um, it's one that also, in some ways, I reflect on this and talk about this passage in my book because it's used later to talk about the ways that humans, like coins, have been stamped with an image. Coins have been stamped with the image of the emperor, and this is what Jesus talks about. Humans have been stamped with the image of God, and this is what different theologians will talk about, what the image of God and humanity means. And so Jesus is actually making this claim, and Christian theologians then riff on this, is to say that humans are, are kind of like coins in a sense, too. In the same way that you would render coins back to whoever issued them, whoever's image is on them, you need to render these human coins back to God, send them back, pay your taxes, so to speak, but pay your spiritual taxes in a sense of obedience, worship, etc. So there's a, there's a wild way in which humans become monetized and become coined in a sense as a result of thinking about these kinds of passages. So those are some examples of monetary metaphor in the early church. So how is that language manifested in attitudes about money in Western society that are different than those attitudes, say, in, in some of the places where you grew up or in India? Yeah, I mean, this is something that for me, to, to be clear, I haven't done direct research on. This is, you know, just kind of us riffing and talking in sure. terms of our impressions and, and me kind of looking out in the world and thinking about this. You know, my, my in-depth research was on the ancient world and I and others, I think, still need to sort of tell the story of how this is kind of trickled down over history toward us. But I do think there's something really interesting about this anxiety around money that we find in the West, this love-hate relationship that we find with it that arguably uh, we don't see or see in different ways in other in other societies. In, in other societies, there might be uh, just sort of a, well, what's the big deal? Money's great and we need to accumulate it. <laughs> Duh. Um, yeah. And so maybe a sort of a no-nonsense, more pragmatic approach to accumulation and to earning money. In the West, again, in, in these Christian and post-Christian sort of secular, post-secular societies, there continues to be this kind of you know, vexation, this burden, this, again, anxiety about, well, you know, I really want money. I really want to earn it. But at the same time, uh, maybe this is bad. I need to second guess this. I need to, I need to worry about, you know, is my soul at stake? Is my, are my moral values being off kilter, et cetera? There's something I think very particular and peculiar about that and interesting about that, that comes from this long legacy of this, this tension, this push pull about money and priorities and worshiping it that that comes from this this christian engagement with it and it's not just simply a matter of fact like earn as much as you can and then give a certain amount to the poor which we can see in judaism and in uh, islam for instance there's a more of this kind of internal dialogue that continues to also happen because of this christian emphasis on kind of searching your heart and an influence on your shaping of internal conscience that I think is very interesting. And again, I don't want to overstate the differences. One, I think, could make the case that in Judaism and Islam as well, there certainly is a focus on conscience and on this internal dialogue as well with where is your heart, is your heart really worshiping God versus money? But there is, I think, a really heightened emphasis on this in Christianity that sort of shaped our various traditions of philanthropy, of welfare, of redistribution, all these debates that we have today about whether there should be billionaires or not, whether the government should be redistributing money. These are debates that, of course, are not only happening in the West, but are, I think, have, there's a distinctive fingerprint from some of these Christian concerns that remains that I think is worth 
exploring. One of the interesting ways that money shows up in modern Christianity is in the prosperity gospel. Joel Osteen is reportedly worth over $50 million. How do you interpret his popularity? Well, first I interpret the fact that I clearly chose the wrong career path. And <laughs> when I think about finding ways to pay my bills as a modestly paid academic, I, you know, I do jokingly think about starting a prosperity church. Modestly, but you get a nice little gig there. Don't undersell yourself, Devin. <laughs> yeah, we can, we can come back to that for okay. sure. We're, we're going um, to, we're going to. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. The prosperity, gospel prosperity teaching is wildly popular and arguably, perhaps not even arguably, I think statistics show this, that it's the, one of the fastest growing branches of uh, Christianity. And, and many Did, Christians today would, be, would want to quickly distance that and say that it's not part of Christianity. Can you define prosperity gospel for us? Yes. So the prosperity gospel, generally speaking, is the idea that being wealthy, being healthy, being prosperous, having a fulfilled life in these material senses is a sign of God's blessing. So that God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be uh, never sick. God wants you to be fully happy and fulfilled. And that if you are, it's a sign that God is with you. And what's more, there are certain things you can do to make sure that you are this way. The most nefarious, the one that's often criticized the most is actually by paradoxically getting rid of some of your money by giving it to a church right. who in turn, this church and this pastor who has a kind of closer proximity to God than you can then ensure that this blessing will be returned to you. Protestant so, indulgence. Great. That's a great and very interesting comparison. I think there's a lot of work to be done about that. So what Paul is referring to here is this idea that in the, in the Catholic church, there were these indulgences that were ideas that you could buy away your sin or pay, you know, pay, donate to the church. And in some sense, your sin or the sins of those who are suffering in purgatory could be forgiven. And the, Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation criticized this. But what you're saying, Paul, I think this is really interesting. And, and there's something to this is that perhaps Protestants have recreated this in new, modern, more media savvy ways. And there's something to that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, but it's in there, I mean, people have profiled this, you know, John Oliver has a famous episode on this, uh, but others as well, where, Many people who are poor and suffering are being taken advantage of by preachers who come and say, you know, give this to the church, plant the seed money, and the seed will bear fruit in terms of actual money and resources returned to you. So it's taking language of sacrifice, of almsgiving, of giving of yourself, which we do find a lot of in scripture. And also we do find language that God does want to bless God's people in some way. And that generally speaking, God doesn't want people to be suffering and starving and in poverty and combining those ideas to say that if you give and if you sacrifice in this way, that God's blessing will return to you. And oh, by the way, you know, please swipe your credit card here. It needs to pass through the church to make it possible. And it's a huge movement. It's growing. Um, it's all over the world, particularly in the global, in the America and the global South, which I find interesting. So I, I talk about this as well, that maybe there's, there are interesting connections to colonialism because why is it the post-colonial world, these parts that have been colonized and influenced by European and American Christianity, where this message is now so prevalent. And I mean, there, there are some connections there that need to be unearthed as well. I want to talk about colonialism in just a second, but I want to stay on this theme for a moment. If viewed uncharitably, that aspect of the prosperity gospel, i.e. give and you will be rewarded, is a complete scam. If you charitably, this is my interpretation, this is an opinion, this is, you're not endorsing this, right? If you charitably, it means that God's taking an active role in our lives. And if you buy that, then you have to assume that God purposefully also sends hurricanes, genocide, and reality television. 
is that part of the thinking as well? Does the prosperity gospel take into account the bad stuff that happens in the world as well? Christianity, not just the prosperity gospel, but Christianity, broadly speaking, has always struggled with this issue. What do we do with the sovereignty of God, the idea that most Christians believe that God is in control in some sense? What do we do with suffering, evil, brokenness in the world? And there are various responses to that. So the prosperity gospel, just like a lot of Christianity, can pick and choose and say, no, God didn't want that. But God does want you <laughs> to be to be blessed and to be and to be wealthy. These other things are the result of sin, uh, brokenness in the world that ultimately is, is humankind's fault. And then, there's, you know, the story of Adam and Eve and the fall might come in. You know, more progressive Christians might talk about how God in God's wisdom has designed a natural order that does include a certain kind of life cycle of death, of dying, of destruction that is not really destruction from a broader world point of view, but from our limited point of view as humans, it does seem bad, but there's a greater wisdom to it in that, in that sense. So there are different ways around this. Um, I don't think it's just a, prop, a problem for the prosperity gospel, the problem for Christianity writ large, but the prosperity gospel becomes very practical. I mean, that's, that's the, I think, why it's so appealing. It brings in the kind of modern entrepreneurial desire for, you know, three quick steps to X, Y, and Z that we find in so many business books today, for instance, and applies it to your spiritual life and says, here are the three basic things. Let's get down to brass tacks. Here are the three basic practical things that you need to do to be blessed and be wealthy and makes it very clear for people in terms of what to do. And so that's part of the appeal as well as it's very pragmatic in that sense. Don't worry about these big metaphysical questions about why is there suffering in the world? God wants you, you personally, to be wealthy. And here are the five things to do to, to ensure that. But if God is an interventionist God and he wills one person to be rich, then by the same logic, he wills somebody else to be poor. Uh, not necessarily. God could will that everybody wants to be rich, but it's just some people who have the faith to show that and receive that, and others don't have that faith. This is the answer. Obviously, I'm not endorsing this, but God has created humans with free will, and God wants humans to exercise that free will. And so God is waiting for humans to respond to this desire that God has to bless humans. And, and all humans need to do is respond by giving all their money to the church and things will be good. So God probably wanted me to stay at Facebook and not quit and become a stand-up comedian to maximize my wealth. All this prosperity gospel stuff seems to be an outgrowth of the work of Max Weber. Tell us about Max. Interesting. Yeah. Max is totally rolling over in his grave right now by you attributing the prosperity gospel. Him. Is that not a logical outgrowth of Max I mean, well, uh, I, I think there, there's no, there's completely. What's the connection? Whether, me, yeah, not, what's the connection between those two things? Yeah, so whether whether or not it's an outgrowth of his work, I think is is it's too strong to say it's an outgrowth of his work. But the phenomena that he observes are, I think, part of what's blossomed into prosperity gospel. I guess if that distinction makes sense. Yeah, yeah and, that's and what I, I meant. That, yeah, he didn't that, cause yeah. the prosperity <laughs> gospel. He just identified some of the things that were going on that have sort of manifested in the modern the modern yes. version of what he was observing around the Protestant work ethic, et cetera. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. There is a link there. And, and surprisingly, to my knowledge, not a lot has been said about this, to me, what seems like a pretty clear and intuitive link. But Weber um, was a German sociologist, and in many ways, one of the founding figures of the field of sociology, writing in the very early 20th century, who observed that there seems to be a, some kind of correlation between countries in Europe where capitalism appears to have really gotten off the ground and become very central and flourishing, and those countries also being Protestant. And so he- Not those he, lazy Catholics in Spain and Italy. 
Paul, it's funny because that language still appears today. I mean, during the Euro crisis, during issues around Greece and the so-called underperforming countries in the Eurozone, you can find op-eds that still talk about this, about the Catholic countries, um, the non, and, and of course, Greece is, you know, would be, have an Orthodox background, but the non-Protestant countries in Europe having the problems. So this language is still there today. But Weber ta- looks at this correlation and he conjectures that there are ideas that the Protestants came up with, the kind of emphases that they developed that seemed to mesh really well with emerging capitalism that allowed it to kind of get off the ground. Now, to be clear, capitalism was already developing in the Italian city-states and in parts of of Italy in particular that was Catholic, but it really sort of had this gasoline poured on its fire in the Netherlands, in England, in the U.S., and these are the places that Weber looks at. One of the things I kept coming back to in in your work is like, okay, this is all interesting, but what does it mean? And so what? And then we start talking about colonialism. I'm like, ah, so here's, here's, and, and by the way, I don't think the Dutch get enough credit for their role in the colonization of weak countries and the slave trade. Although this week they've gotten a little bit of credit <laughs> that they probably don't want, but the use of financial and religious metaphors to justify colonialism really struck me as one of the reasons why this kind of stuff matters. Yeah, that's one of the the big points of impact that we can continue to feel in the in the modern world. And yeah, we have a, with the, the Dutch East East Indies Company, or that we have the British East Indies Company as well. We have we have these early trading firms that were instrumental and always part of the kind of colonial apparatus, if you will, but also accompanied by various missionary organizations. So basically, what the story that I try to tell is ask why. So often did we see this phenomenon in the history of colonialism where colonizers, administrators who were coming with the gun and the boot uh, were also accompanied by missionaries that were coming to preach the gospel. I mean, the, the sort of cynical answer is that, well, that's just one way to get people to submit is to just kind of brainwash them with your, your religion and your ideology. And yeah, that, that's absolutely at work. That's part of it. I'm not going to deny that. But what was more interesting to me was to look at how some of these missionaries could be, in some sense, not self-consciously nefarious and believe they're bringing this much-needed good news of salvation, but are still participating in and even exporting an economic agenda as well. And the economic agenda is one that I try to show with these early Christian ideas that God comes into the world to claim territory for God. I mean, this is part of the, the, what the king, message of the kingdom of God spreading. Um, in the world is is about God sort of reclaiming divine territory. And I also, in, in this ransom theory that we talked about, um, I show that God in some sense colonizes or claims Satan as well, that God, through this economic transaction of using Christ as the currency, actually brings Satan into an economic subjugation and economic fealty to God as well. So there's a way that God colonizes or annexes or brings in satanic territory into the the economy of the kingdom. And we see this language come up again and again in terms of bringing these territories in, you know, deepest, darkest Africa under demonic possession, et cetera, that need to be saved and redeemed with the gospel and also suddenly have, you know, trading posts as well, right? They also happen to have rich natural resource deposits. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it all works together. There are these souls that need to be harvested for the kingdom, which is also language we find in the gospels. And there are these resources that 
oh, look, yeah, have happened to be here as well, that can also make the European centers wealthy. So this operating together of colonization, resource extraction, and extending political rule happening with, on the other hand, extending religious ideas is a pairing that we see in some ways from the beginning. And so that, that was part of what I was wanted, wanted to show is some of the roots of these ideas, some of the, the ways that this gets carried out in the history of European Christianity. All right, Devin, I've got a question that you can use on one of your exams for your undergraduates. Using no fewer than one reference to Adam Smith, answer the question, is capitalism a religion? <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it, de- it depends on how we define religion. If we, um, you know, what needs to be there. Uh, for a religion. I think there are religious aspects to capitalism in terms of if we think about religion as needing some sense of an ultimate good, a kind of horizon of what is ultimately good that one can strive for. If religion includes certain kinds of rituals and practices, if religion has implicit or even explicit kinds of ethics of ways that it means to behave. Capitalism has these things uh, in terms of what it means to be a virtuous market actor, to act with rational efficiency, to act to maximize your interests, to also you know, save well and, and et cetera. There are all kinds of ways that, that we see this language come up. And, and also speaking about colonialism, we see the language of market discipline. These countries need better market discipline and we being the IMF or the World Bank are gonna enforce this on these developing countries to make them in some sense more virtuous capitalists so that they can get their act together, so to speak, which is a a similar kind of language to spiritual disciplines that folks might need to become spiritually mature to participate well in this religion. So there are lots of, lots of parallels though. It it is, you know, it it can function as a belief system, whether or not it's totalizing, whether or not it's kind of piecemeal um, is up for debate, but absolutely there are religious aspects to it. And Smith, Adam Smith, as you mentioned, talks about the invisible hand of the market, which has theological resonances, has ideas that link back to the hand of providence, the hand of God, orchestrating things that happen in in nature and happen in, in human society. And so the idea that the market will balance out toward a kind of equilibrium where all these selfish actions that people do to pursue their own self-interests will somehow benefit the net good of society trades on this idea that God will use all these various sins and the brokenness of humanity to work all things together for good for humankind as well. And so there is a kind of faith that's required that the market is going to give us what we need. Was it that overt or was it just implied due to the language of the day? The language of the miserable hand in Smith was definitely just implied, but his moral uh, philosophy drew on ideas of what was called natural theology of the day, that uh, perhaps God wasn't miraculously involved in everyday life performing miracles, but that God had established certain patterns of operation in the world that one could then study and predict and conform oneself to. And there are debates about Smith's own personal faith and whether he had he had an ear or not, whether he was as outspoken as his friend David Hume, who became a you know a much maligned atheist or at least critic of the church. People said that Smith held his cards very close in terms of his his own personal faith, and perhaps he was a skeptic, but he didn't want to be kicked out of the the Scottish university system, and so wasn't <laughs> going to take that that stand. Whether or not he had he had a personal devotion, he does take advantage of or trade on or rely on a broader assumption in the culture that God's in control ultimately and setting things into motion. And the markets are part of that overall control in in the world. And so 
we can think about how that then trickles down to modern economy where people have rejected any sort of overt faith in God and would never, economists would never say, oh, that God is who brings equilibrium. But this faith in, this assumption in equilibrium, which you know, theorists over and over again say is really never, it's not observed anywhere. It's a kind of vanishing point. It's a sort of ideal. But when that's invoked to say, hey, let's ride out these shockwaves, let's ride out these crises, things are going to self-correct, things are going to come back to equilibrium. That's a faith statement. That's a statement of faith. Yeah, things self-correct when you lower interest rates to 0.5%. And the divine economist is really Alan Greenspan. Yeah, when you when you bail out Wall Street, I mean, you know, that's that's another you know issue as well. When you, when you need to step in rather than let the market take its course and let these companies fail. Right. I want to talk to you a little bit about life as a university professor because your career is interesting to me. What are the pros and cons of life on campus these days? Being a professor is, you know, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful profession in terms of this freedom to explore and pursue what I take to be meaningful and big ideas and to have meaningful conversations with students and with colleagues about these kinds of ideas. And there's a certain, you know, I guess, quality of life or pace of life that comes from that, uh, being able to engage in this kind of discourse and being able to shape people and their values in terms of how they're going to go out and influence the world and impact the world in different ways. I mean, at least one hopes that one's, you know, professors hope that their classes are, are impactful and meaningful and that students will remember what we talked about and, and be shaped in, in uh, meaningful ways. So, you know, there, there are a lot of pros in terms of, again, in terms of this freedom and flexibility to pursue what we take to be top priority issues and raise those things to a level of awareness and consciousness in, in students' minds and as well as in the public's minds to, to the degree that we can, that we can get our message out there. You know, it can, there continue to be cons in terms of the ways that higher education and academia is maligned and is denigrated and seen as somehow superfluous, as not necessary, as elite, as detached. You know, there are all these kinds of aspersions that are cast on the professoriate as well that and in many ways, particularly in the humanities, there is a, you know, a constant sense that they're under attack, that you know, funding is going to be withdrawn, that society wants to really realign and allocate resources to what it values you know, even more, like entertainment and business, as opposed to continue to allocate funding and money toward things like research in the arts and in literature and in history and all these things that many people would say make us who we are as a society, but people don't readily see the value of that. And so there's this constant sense of needing to justify that or explain why it matters to read literature and talk about human desire for meaning and significance, uh, human failure, love, etc. All these things that, again, I think are, are really central to who we are. So there, there's that, that push-pull and that tension there of feeling like you're doing a really important <laughs> thing and also feeling like a lot of society fails to see that. It seems to me like, well, there's Harvard and Dartmouth and Stanford at the top of the, the ranks where, hey, I'd pay 70 grand a year to send my kid to one of those schools. But then there's private schools with a whole lot less cachet where there's, you know, talking about ROI before, how do I know what kind of an ROI my kid's going to get? And it's not so much an issue for my kids, but for somebody that's got to borrow 50 grand a year to send their kid to college, how do they justify that investment? Yeah, it's a good good set of questions and tensions and issues. You know, part of it is what matters to them in terms of what are the, like what counts as the ROI, right? Is sure. it yeah. is it, you know, landing a good job and getting good pay? Is it a sense of also being kind of grounded and centered in oneself in terms of knowing what what one is about, what matters, what their priorities are? 
Is it access? Is it, you know, that I, I'm willing to plunk down this money because of the cachet that comes from association <laughs> with these particular names, you know, just to be kind of real and pragmatic and the doors that will open, right, to kind of play by the rules of society in terms of its sort of love of status and, and elitism and whatnot. I mean, one can be really pragmatic about these things. Part of the challenge is paying you know, parents and, and their college going children need to need to, I think, think a lot about what counts as what's most valuable for them in terms of making that investment. Clearly, I've stepped away from the corporate world to explore issues that have more to do with, I think, meaning or finding some personal significance around the work that we do. But how do you sort of, and this perhaps is a rhetorical question, but how do you balance the desire for self-actualization and the need to provide yourself food and shelter? I mean, if I'm self-actualized and I'm 24 and I owe $180,000 in student loans, that doesn't feel like complete self-actualization. Yeah, that's great. And this is an important issue that doesn't, I don't think comes up enough. I mean, I, I think I, I, certainly academics are not in no way naive about those kind of pressures. I mean, we, we like to talk big about the fulfillment that comes from thinking about big ideas and pursuing meaning and, and self-actualization, as you put it. But recognizing that it, this also assumes and comes with a certain level of resources and stability and provision that makes this possible. I find academia as an interesting in a peculiar spot because academia emerged as a, you know, as a branch of society that was a, that relied on patrons. It was in some sense, a, uh, what the aristocracy provided for itself in terms of educating its youth and, um, raising up people to be further elites in society, in the society in terms of the ruling order. And we can see this back in Plato's Academy and the Republic, not the Republic, but his, um, Plato's philosophy and Aristotle as well, that, you know, these were the educators of the elite and there is aristocratic stream that continues, I think in academia and yet many academics also have progressive politics and want to identify somehow with and champion the working class and the wage earners. And there is a, a real tension that I think is, it still needs to be grappled with of how to articulate the fulfilled life when there's these bare bones, brass tacks kinds of needs about, I need to make some money to be, you know, stable and secure before I sit here and talk about the meaning of life with you. And many academics feel this as well. I mean, again, with the sort of myth of the mythology around professors in academia, I think many think of them as elite in the sense that they are wealthy. Most academics are struggling financially, and yet many of them also enjoy a kind of symbolic capital um, <laughs> that they're associated with these places of wealth and prestige. And so many assume that that symbolic capital translates into financial capital and often doesn't. So yes, they can hang out in these halls of power and, elite, and elitism where they're teaching uh, the children of one percenters, but they're also often in financially precarious um, situations themselves. Do you think that proximity to children of the most powerful people in the world heightens that anxiety? Is there ever any resentment that exists in the classroom? I'm sure it does on some level. I think it's a complicated relationship. I think there's, again, kind of like this, this weird love-hate that we've talked about with Christianity and money. I think in academia, there is a sense of, and I see this a lot with academics who express and often mime the values of the aristocratic class in terms of, you know, valuing the high arts and condescending about popular culture and crass mass culture, et cetera. And so they're kind of ventriloquizing and speaking the language of the aristocracy there. And that's the kind of condescension that many in the so-called working class, you know, resent and feel that too. And that's I mean, also feeding into this rejection of academia is what well, you're looking down on us. And it's because of this language of you know, aping this language of the aristocracy. 
on one hand. On the other hand, then academics are feeling this very real tension of, you know, the sort of stereotypical professor who has a thread, you know, threadbare tweed coat whose elbows are wearing thin because, you know, he's shopping at the at the thrift store or hasn't been able to replace his wardrobe or whatever it might be. I've never thought about the patches, the stereotypical patches on a professor's tweed coat. That comes from a thrift thing, right? I I thought that was a stylish thing. I'm not, I'm not making that sartorial claim at all. I'm saying literally that, you know, (laughs) and and, and I have this on my, some of my jackets as well. The elbows are wearing thin because I haven't replaced them, but the patches, yeah, I don't know if that that emerged as a practical thing or not. I do want to mention though, that I don't want to project this image that professors are all teaching the children of one percenters. In fact, that's a minority. Many professors are teaching in community colleges and state schools where they're teaching folks who are working full-time jobs, who are coming in on you know, nights and weekends to take classes, to try to improve their lot in life. The majority of academics are teaching the so-called normal person in the trenches and are very well acquainted with those kinds of struggles and, and also can identify with those struggles as well. Plenty of academics, the majority of academics are what we call contingent labor. They don't have secure full-time jobs or tenured jobs. They are adjuncts, they are visiting professors, they're piecing together a career by driving all over town or the geographical area to teach you know, five or six classes at, you know, to getting paid a grand to two grand for three or four months of labor, which is insane. And so when you break down the time value of their labor and the kind of wages they're actually earning, it's ridiculous. Um, and, and so we need to, to shed a light on the fact that many academics are needing to turn to assistance, uh, public assistance to survive and are under financially precarious circumstances. Mm. That's the Uber for knowledge model that they've just come up with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Outsourcing that labor and casualizing it and bringing it to it. that and, you know, online teaching as well, where at some Oops. point it'll, it'll just be, a, it'll just be a handful of professors teaching courses to everybody. And then at some point the professors will be replaced by AI. Um, and there won't be a need for physical professors anymore being videotaped. Um, so yeah, there's, there's an interesting trend on the horizon that way as well. And many people say this. Andrew Yang's got you covered. Uh, with the couple of minutes we have left, I want to ask a couple more personal questions about money and religion. Growing up, you were brought up in a multi-faith household. What were you taught about money and God? I wasn't taught a lot, or I realized this later. I, you know, my mom was a was a single working mother who worked her butt off to support me, and then eventually me and my younger brother when he came along. And, you know, hustled and worked her fingers to the bone to provide for us. Uh, she wasn't somebody who talked openly about her financial situation, though, or sort of sort of we didn't have like family finance night, which I hear is something that people do that parents open up their <laughs> budgets to their kids as a way to sort of train them in financial literacy. I didn't have that. I didn't know anything about our financial situation, except to realize that, you know, mom was working a lot and we didn't necessarily have a ton. And my dad is is blue collar working class, you know, worked mid for many years as a trucker. He is now, you know, he's, he's also been a, the proverbial Indian cab driver in the Bay area. So he drives taxis and also lived, you know, cash based, you know, paycheck to paycheck, so to speak, whatever, however you say that when it, in terms of cash. So, you know, didn't come from that, those sort of resources. And so I, you know, I, and I didn't think about this until recently, you know, I, I think I entered into these studies very idealistically thinking about economic justice, thinking about the need for redistribution. And I still very much hold to those ideals, but I've also come to accept very much that I think a lot about and worry a ton about money. And part of, part of this relates to, you know, what I've talked about in terms of the kind of financial precarities that I think many academics 
experience. But, you know, to be kind of honest with myself is that I can't claim to be some sort of virtuous person who is embodying these ideals that I've studied where I'm able to relinquish my love for or worry about finances in the name of some faith or some sort of higher sort of good. Yes, I want want to embrace many of those ideals, but I also want to make sure that, you know, I can provide for my family and those anxieties come up a ton and crowd out some of these sort of higher pursuits in terms of wanting to sit back and pontificate about the deep meaning of life and society. Do you believe that money comes with any universal moral obligations? That's a tough question. I'm going to say yes, because more because of what I think money is. And so there are debates about where money comes from, how it emerged, what it is. And I do see money and understand money to be a political instrument that emerges from societies, complex societies living together under some form of authority, a state, centralized state or empire, emperor, monarch. So money links us together in those societies as well as under that authority. And so because of that, money is always implicated in power dynamics. It's always implicated in our mutual obligations to one another. Money isn't neutral the way that we like to say in terms of, oh, money is just a tool. We just used to buy and sell things. No, money comes with all of this other institutional and social uh, baggage, if you will, or at least connections. And so by using money and by participating in a money economy, we are already obligated. We're already in a state of obligation uh, in terms of where it's come from, how we've earned it, what we do with it. Um, And so it's a matter of recognizing that, being aware of that, that we are in this very complex network of relationships and there's, there's nothing neutral or kind of ground, you know, sort of zero point about it. And so, so yeah, so to answer your question, it does come with obligations. Sorting them out is part of the issue, right? It's not a clear, again, you know, back to the prosperity gospel, three steps, three quick steps, or back to, you know, all, again, all the business books that I can, that we find out there, three quick steps to X, Y, and Z, right? It's not, it's not that, not that clear. So you're sitting in the, in the religious studies building on the campus of Princeton University today, down the hall from Peter Singer, whom I interviewed six months ago. And I asked him if I donated my money at the levels he suggested in his book, would I go to heaven? I want to ask you the same question. If I give away enough of my money, will I go to heaven? Yeah, I I heard that interaction on your uh, podcast. It was great. And, you know, his also calling you very primitive as a result of asking (laughs) that question, I thought was was pretty awesome. That was great. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to punt on that because I don't know the answer at a broad sense. This is what the early church taught. So the early church was very clear that giving away um, most of your belongings, giving away till it hurts, giving alms to the poor was a necessary component of the spiritual life. And I want to emphasize that because I think Christians over the course of many centuries began to spiritualize that away and soften that to say that, well, it's not really about giving away the money, but as long as I don't care about it so much, sure, you know, I, I can be a millionaire, <laughs> a billionaire, but I'm, but I'm not in love with my money, so I'm all good. And then the, the early church preachers would say, well, if that's the case, then, you know, put your money where your mouth is and get rid of it. So the church unequivocally at, at its early stages did teach, yes, that you need to give away your money to be saved. So I'll answer from, you know, from that perspective. Obviously, I have no idea. I'll also admit that I'm not prepared to embrace that. So I'm not a hardcore ascetic, even though I wanted to be and I think had those ideals when I started out, this kind of ideal of embracing um, living as if I was poor among the poor. And there, there are strands of Christian theology that teach this. Many very inspiring strands, strands that I love and, and find beautiful. But I'm also going to admit that I'm not, uh, I'm not hardcore enough to embrace economic martyrdom 
to, to live out those ideals. <laughs> I love it. Economic martyrdom. Well, hey, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? So uh, I have a website, just devinsing.com. It's probably the easiest place to go. And there are a bunch of links there that you can you know, read about my book, Divine Currency, find some other articles and op-eds that I've written some videos of me spouting more of this nonsense. So uh, thank, <laughs> thank you though. It's been a, it's been a really fun uh, conversation, Paul. I appreciate <laughs> you uh, taking the time to join us. Thank you, Devin, for your time. I really appreciate your work and found your point of view quite thought provoking. And I look forward to reading more about debt when your new book comes out. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, if you like what we're doing here at Crazy Money, I sure would appreciate it if you would share this this episode or whichever episodes have resonated most with you with three friends, three friends that you believe would find this kind of an exploration of the connection between money and happiness to be worth their time, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to uh, provoke some thought. That's what we're doing. And not everybody's going to be down for this kind of podcast. I get it. That's fine. I didn't know what it was going to be when I started talking into the microphone. I thought it was going to be more hoots and hollers, but it's a less morning drive show and more, hey, what's it all about? And uh, that's worthwhile, right? Uh, also, if you haven't already done so, and many of you have, and I greatly appreciate it, but please do take a second to rate and review this podcast, especially if you use it in Apple iTunes or in their podcast app. Why? Because iTunes is sort of the default metric by which a podcast's power and ability to take over the world with its brilliant insight is measured. So iTunes or podcast would be great. If you're listening to me on Spotify or Pandora, thank you. Hey, welcome. Love those platforms too. They don't have the same review type functionality that iTunes has. Anyway, hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking around. I really appreciate it. I'm glad you found it valuable enough to want to hang in there. And I want to end up by saying thank you to my friend, producer, and editor, Mike Carano. Mike, Make me sound smart. Goodbye.